Our scripture passage comes from Matthew 12, 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with them? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Becky. Uh, last February, I was in the uh, works of putting together a, a plan to have scripture readers each Sunday. Almost spilled my water. That was not part of the plan. Uh, and guess what? The wheels fell off. So here we are, finally a year later, just about. And I'm so thankful to be adding that to our worship in the morning on Sundays. Uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Father in heaven, I am thankful uh, for the rain. Uh, I don't know what it is. I've always appreciated the rain, Father, and I'm just thankful that you give us a, a visible image of your mercy. You wash the earth clean. You rain on both the righteous who are righteous by Christ and the unrighteous. You are generous to this world, Father, and I pray this morning as we hear from this Scripture passage about compassion and mercy, that you would break our hearts for those things. We love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're still in our sermon series, The, power and the, the, the Message and the Power of the Messiah. And here in this passage, we have a Sabbath battle. It's pretty great. We have two rounds. No holds barred, Jesus versus the Pharisees. And um, in the first section, Jesus teaches something. He relays a concept. He, in verses 1 through 8, he has a teaching. And then in verses 9 through 14, he demonstrates that teaching with power through a miracle. Uh, let's make sure before we get into the passage that we're all up to speed. What is the Sabbath? What is it? It's a word we don't hear very often. Uh, the Sabbath comes from the Ten Commandments. And so if you look to Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, you can read the fourth commandment. I'll read that to you. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it 
you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Did God need rest after creation? No. He modeled for us something that was for us. Something that He would give as a command. The Sabbath day to keep it holy. From our own tradition, we can read uh, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism what is required in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment requires all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as He hath appointed in His Word, expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh day from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. In a related tradition, the Dutch tradition, the Heidelberg says this, what does God require in the fourth commandment? In the first place, God wills that the ministry of the gospel and schools be maintained. And that I personally, especially on that day of rest, diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, to give Christian alms. In the second place, that all the days of my life, I rest from my evil works. Allow the Lord to work in me by his spirit and thus begin in this life, the everlasting Sabbath. Here's the point I want to make. There's some things that we agree upon that the Sabbath day includes. Jason's treatment of holiness? Exactly. We have to recognize the holiness of God on the Sabbath day. That's a non-negotiable. We should worship on the Sabbath day. That's a non-negotiable. However, there are differences amongst different Christians about what we ought to do on the Sabbath day. And, and, and what we see here amongst the traditions is flexibility is okay sometimes. But for the Pharisees in these passages, for the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this day, flexibility was not a word you could apply to the Sabbath. There were no acceptable differences. You must celebrate the Sabbath the one very specific, narrow way that they had defined. I'll give you some examples. Uh, so first of all, there is the Law of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible. And then there's this thing called Mishnah. And Mishnah is the written oral tradition of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees and the, the rabbis from, from uh, the time of Jesus, probably before that onward, had been clarifying the Law of Moses for the people of Israel. And so here's some examples of how they defined you ought to celebrate the Sabbath. Not many. There's a lot of them. I'm going to give you two. One, this is why I find this interesting. They took... Uh, the law of Moses in Exodus 16, Moses says this, See, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. Remain each of you in his place. So you see this kind of general idea. When you are on the Sabbath, you shouldn't go on these long journeys. You should be at home. Here's how the Pharisees and the Mishnah translated that. They set an, a technical specific distance of 915 meters. You may not travel from your home 916 meters. If you go 916, guess what? You just blew the Sabbath up. You, you violated it. You've dishonored God. And so I've read in places that even the day before, those who are afraid of violating this would tie a rope around their waist because tying a knot on the Sabbath is work. And it would be 915 meters or whatever unit of measurement they used. And so if they were walking, they, the rope would stop them. Oh, thank goodness, I'm safe from violating the Sabbath. Here's another example. The gathering of earthborn organic material from its original place. You all know the one. All right, so think about this. Think about strawberries for a moment. If you were on the Sabbath, according to the Mishnah, to go and pluck strawberries from their plant, 
where they're growing and put them in a pile or put them in your pocket or put them in a bowl, guess what? You would have gathered. You would have reaped. This is a big deal. You would have done work on the Sabbath. However, if that same bowl of strawberries were to tip over in your home on the Sabbath and you were to put them in the bowl, gather them up, and put them back on the table, guess what? You're safe because you didn't pick them from the place that they grew. Do you see the technicalities here? Do you see the micro-fine-tuning of what is work and what is not? This goes on and on and on in the Mishnah. This particular rule about gathering will be, of course, relevant to us today. So for the Pharisees, the point I'm trying to make here, the point that we need to understand is that for the Pharisees, there, were no, there was no room for disagreement. This is the one way to have the Sabbath. And so what happens is they see Jesus practicing something else with his disciples. And twice, they come on the attack against Jesus in regard to his interpretation of the fourth commandment. That's what we're reading about today. So we're studying. Arguments, a battle over the Sabbath. Round one, verses one through eight. I call this the fracas in the field. I'm just having fun with that, okay? Um, here's what's happening. Verse one. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. They're walking on the Sabbath. They're traveling. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. You, are, you know already what's going to be the problem. What's the problem? Where do grain heads grow? In grain fields. And what are the disciples doing? Picking grain from grain plants. And so I think it's interesting uh, first of all, we understand this is not a snack. It wasn't, they weren't eating out of boredom. This word hungry means they had a legitimate need for sustenance. They, they needed food. And they weren't stealing. In Deuteronomy uh, 23, it says this. I love the qualification on this verse, by the way. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not sickle your whole neighbor's grain. Imagine Moses giving this law to the second generation and there's Jehoshaphat with his sickle heading out. Oh, I can take my neighbor's grain? No, you may not. It's not that's not what we mean. If you're walking about, it's a law based on mercy, you absolutely can pick your neighbor's grain. It's no big deal. We're sharing. You're living together. But here's the problem. The disciples on the Sabbath, how dare they in the eyes of the Pharisees pluck grain from the plant and gather it into their mouths and their stomachs. Some scholars don't understand why the Pharisees were in the field in the first place, which is interesting to think about. They're kind of with their ancient binoculars watching the disciples, but they have a huge issue with what they're seeing. Look at verse 2. When the Pharisees saw it, they said, look, your disciples, what they're doing, what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're, 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 they're incensed. This is not good. Aha, we finally caught Jesus and his disciples violating the law. Jesus responds with a rhetorical argument. Verses 3 through 6 is Jesus, actually 3 through 8 is Jesus responding, but the, the meat of his argument is in 3 through 6. And, and this rhetorical argument is called the less and the weighty, meaning what he's going to do is say, here's some scenarios that are less than what we're dealing with here that show you a principle that would allow us to do this. And then he moves on the end to say, now look at what's going on here. Do you see how we get this interpretation? So let's take a look. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests. So 
Here, this is not a Sabbath violation. David and his men were hungry. They went into the temple or into the tabernacle at this point, and what do they do? They ate the bread that was set aside for the provision of the priest. That was a no-no by God's law. And yet, what happened? God had mercy. Why? Because David and his men were hungry. They had a need, a real physical need. Jesus goes on, or have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The second example is from Shabbat 132. Again, the Mishnah. So he's going on to the, the Pharisees' terms. And he's saying, you know that rule that you have set for the, Pharisee, for, the, for the priest? Guess what priests and pastors do? They work on the Sabbath. And that this rule was a mercy to them. You know what? As you do God's work in the temple, it's okay. You're not violating Sabbath. And so, so Jesus is pointing them to their own law to show them, hey, there are exceptions to this. Leon Morris puts it this way, what God was doing in sending Jesus far surpassed what he did in setting up temple worship. The argument is from the less to the greater. The satisfaction of the hunger of David and his men and even the offering of sacrifice by priest in the temple do not compare in significance with the coming of Christ to bring salvation. And so in other words, what is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? How much more, if it's acceptable in those times and in those places and in those cases, how much more acceptable is it for me, Jesus, the Son of Man, to violate your man-made principles in order to feed my disciples? You can see in verse 8, he says, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, who gave you the command in the first place? I did. But there's this other concept. It's not just because I said so. That's not his answer. The answer, the, the true meaning of what Jesus is trying to relay is found in verse 7. He says this to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, my disciples have done no wrong. They fed their bellies. God had mercy on them. The Pharisees, if we're recalling who they are, they're blind to a lot. I mean, they see Jesus' miracles. They, see, they hear Jesus' teaching. And what do they say? He must be from God. But guess what? They don't accept it. They don't want it. They're, they're, they're willingly blind to who Jesus is. But something we can learn from this particular section and the next is that the, the Pharisees are blind to those who are in need. They have no mercy. The Pharisees have no mercy, no compassion. All they have... All they have is austere, strict rule-keeping. All they have is measurable piety. Well, if we do this and this and this, we must be fine with God. We don't need to worry about anything else. All the Pharisees have are their rules. They didn't understand that feeding a hungry person was more important than the rightness and the method of Sabbath-keeping. And so, after verses 1-8, through eight, they're defeated. They retreat. They don't have a response for Jesus. They go back to their corner, and it sets us up for round two, verses 9 through 14. I call this the synagogue smackdown. Enjoy that, if you will. Okay, the synagogue smackdown. In verses 9 and 10, we see the Pharisees come out swinging. He went into their synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. This means a paralyzed hand. I think Luke makes it clear it was his right hand. 
a hand that had no functionality. There's a man there with a withered hand, and they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. (laughs) It's so important that Matthew puts that in there. They're not asking out of curiosity. They don't really care. They don't care whether you can heal or not. They want to accuse Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. They want to find a way to make him discredited. So we can see that they have not learned anything from their experience from the fracas in the field. They're doubling down on this idea that they have these certain specific narrow set of rules and they are going to find a way to find Jesus guilty of violating what they desire. And so they're testing Jesus on this obscure teaching. And so the the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This refers again to another law from the Mishnah. And the, the basic teaching of this law was that unless the person's life is in danger, unless the person is going to die in that moment, you may not administer medicine. You may not heal in any way. So if it can wait till Sunday or wait till Monday, wait. Don't heal. Because you might accidentally work and violate the Sabbath. That law also extended to animals. Before we move on to Jesus' response, I want us to just notice this man with a withered hand. We should feel for this man. Here he is, a man who likely doesn't have a livelihood, whose hand is incapable of doing what our hands do, right? Grabbing a drink of water or whatever. He has no use of his hand. And instead of the, the Pharisees seeing him and having mercy, what do they do? They see him and they use him as a pawn for their agenda, Think about this. This man is here, probably here to see the healer, Jesus, and to experience that. He hasn't asked anything, but the Pharisees point him out and say, oh, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He's being used, ignored. So Jesus, in the face of their lack of compassion, in the face of their coercion of this man with a disability, He calls out a double standard. This is fascinating. So in verse 11, Jesus says, which one of you, and what he's doing is he's, imagine this group of Pharisees standing here. They have the man with the withered hand, and they're making this argument with Jesus. Jesus turns his attention from the Pharisees to everyone. And he talks about something that was common practice. He says this, which one of you has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Most of the scholars I read this week uh, said that this uh, was a violation, this is fascinating, a violation of the Sabbath that the Pharisees likely turned a blind eye to. So they're not perfect in their observance of of the Sabbath. What's happening here is uh, the scenario is an ox or a sheep will fall into a ditch. The Shabbat says you may not help that animal. That is work. Instead, you can throw things into, this is fascinating, throw things into the pit and let the animal crawl out itself. Okay, I mean, but here's what the the Pharisees are allowing most people to do to help the sheep. And it's not because they have mercy on animals. It's because most livestock is the way of earning money for people. And so what what is going on here? What's the double standard? The, The Pharisees were allowing a common violation of the Sabbath so that people could have not mercy on animals, but mercy on their money. Mercy on their money. Oh, we understand. It would affect your livelihood, so just go ahead. Go ahead and do it. And so what Jesus is pointing out is this. He's not condemning helping animals out of the ditch. 
That's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying it's perfectly fine to have mercy on an animal. Why wouldn't we want? Look at verse 12. Of, of how much more value is a man than a sheep, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying to the people, listen, I'm not saying you're breaking the Sabbath by helping a sheep. What I'm saying is it's a good thing to have mercy on an animal and even more so to have mercy on a human being in need of help. In fact, it's not wrong to heal this man's suffering. And see the question of the Pharisees. Is it wrong to heal? Is it lawful to heal? It's a question of avoidance. Jesus is saying it's a no-brainer. It is good. It is lawful to heal. We should have mercy on the Sabbath. I love this next part. When I was studying it this week, it really just... It lit my heart on fire. It's a demonstration of compassion. Jesus turns this man who was made a pawn into a phenomenon. That's what he does. Something incredible. And so what does he say? Jesus, let me just say this. Jesus is a renegade in all the right ways. I love that about Jesus. Look what he says. This, this, should, this should make your, your, your spine tingle. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. In front of everybody, stretch out your hand. And what happens? And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Let me, Jesus says, let me show you how good it is. I'm going to heal this man's hand. I would say the second round goes to Jesus. As a sidestep, look at verse 14. This goes to the, one of the points from last week's sermon about the heart of man, how at its base level, what does it do? It hates God. Look at this. In the face of being defeated by healing, what do the Pharisees turn to? The Pharisees went out and conspired how to what? Destroy him. In the face of being defeated by the healing mercy of Jesus, their response is to destroy it. That's the heart of man. That's our hearts, church. When they're sinful, that's us. There's two applications, two major applications, I think, from this passage for us. The first one's pretty straightforward. It has to do with the Sabbath. It has to do with the Sabbath. The same story recounted in Mark, Jesus says this, in addition to I am Lord of the Sabbath, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. As is with all of God's law, as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, it's about the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. You hear that? The heart of the law, not the letter. And so for the Sabbath, what is the primary focus of the Sabbath? Yes, it's the holiness of God. Yes, it's worship. But worship is what? Mercy. It's mercy. He gave us the Sabbath so that we might rest. It's not a rule that He gave that He snickers every time we have to follow. No, He wants us to rest. He knows we need it. It's for us. Not for him. The Sabbath is meant to be merciful on us. Several years ago, uh, I bought Julie ice cream this week while we were going. So she, this is like, I'm making up for that. I'm going to use your name. All right. Um, several years ago, Julie and I were reading a book. And in that book, uh, this particular author presented a, a way of doing the Sabbath that he said was uh, the right way in a sense. It's a better Sabbath. And so Julie and I, we, we felt like, yeah, let's try this. Let's do this. And so we, 
we attempted to do the Sabbath this way for, for many, many weeks. Let me tell you something. When you try to do Sabbath the right way or rest the right way or do it a better way, it becomes exhausting. Now, this teaching in the book wasn't wrong. It was simply a man who was an empty nester saying this is how we experience the Sabbath and it didn't work for parents who had kids and diapers. It just didn't. It just didn't work. We were exhausted. And what were we doing? Following rules, following rules, following rules and totally neglecting God's mercy on us. And so here's what I want to say. Yes, there are non-negotiables about the Sabbath. Don't hear me say that there is anything other than that. But what we need to do, church, is be cautious about how far we take our rulemaking about the Sabbath. We need to be cautious. The Sabbath is for what? Man, not man for the Sabbath. God desires to give us a day in the week where we go to the source of all good, the source of all rest, the source of all mercy, and bathe in it. That's what the Sabbath is for. That's what the Sabbath is for. Let God have mercy on you. The, the second application, there's a subtle truth here that I think, at least in my heart, exposes a more insidious sin, a hidden sin, less obvious sin in our hearts. And it comes from this idea, this, this concept that Jesus puts forth in verse 7, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What was he saying to the Pharisees? What is he saying to us as he talks to the Pharisees? Here's what he's saying. Rightness, rightness does not replace compassion. Rightness does not replace compassion. Listen to this from Leon Morris again. It is the practice of compassion that should distinguish the people of God rather than the punctilious observance, I wish I could come up with those words, of outward regulations, no matter how sacred. What is a punctilious observance? It's a detailed, meticulous, ultra-careful observance. It's looking at the letter of the law, like the Pharisees, not the heart of the law. What should mark the people of Christ? Compassion. Compassion, not rule-following. And replacing compassion. We need to let that cut us to the marrow church. Where are we being punctilious observers? What the ramifications of that set in. Listen, Christ demands compassion over and above ritual. And we're going to study this passage in a few weeks, but Matthew 25, we see Jesus. He's telling his disciples about how things will be at the end. He says, I will be king, I will be judge, and I'll separate goats from sheep. And the goats are those who claim that I'm their Lord, but have done nothing about it. And then he talks about the sheep over here. And here's what he says about the sheep. Come, he's talk, Jesus talking to the sheep. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do these things? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you hear the concern of Jesus? Who is he asking us to see and have compassion? The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger. Do you know what that word is? Foreigner. Foreigner. The naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Jesus calls us to have compassion on the most vulnerable among us. 
Allow me to be direct for a moment. Whether you allow me or not, I guess I'm going to be, all right? We as a church are exceptional at sticking up for some vulnerable people. Some. There are certain demographics that no one sticks up for, that we stand in the gap and we take abuse and we stand for them and we say they deserve compassion, they deserve a voice, and we do that so, so well. However, church, we, are, we struggle at having compassion on all who need it. We struggle. We struggle. I think we especially need to be cautious that we don't become like the, the, the Jewish folks in the synagogue that, that we partake in this double standard where we desire to have mercy on our own money at the expense of those who are truly in need in this world. We have to be careful. We're Western. It's just something that about our culture, we, we look to our possessions, we look to our stuff, and we like it. So we protect it. And we forget about those who are on the margins. For the follower of Christ, it's not an either-or. Jesus doesn't work that way. That's measurable piety. Well, if I have mercy on them, I don't need to have mercy on them. That's not what Jesus calls us to do as disciples. He calls us to this perfect thing that God has so that what our heart is consistently and regularly changed and challenged by the Holy Spirit. It's not either-or for the followers of Christ. It's both-and, and we have to be challenged by that. The question then would be, okay, Ransom, how do we regain mercy? Or even how do we find mercy for those who are in need? And here's the answer to that. When we reckon what we are and remember the mercy we have been shown, we will have mercy on others. That's where it comes from. Remembering who we are, what Christ has done, that work uh, uh, God's mercy on someone who didn't deserve it. God's mercy on someone who was hungry and thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in prison. His mercy He had on us is what the mercy we show to others. And I love this story, and, and I love this idea that there is a man here who is healed because the man with the withered hand is the key to that for us this morning. It's the key. We are the man with the withered hand. It's not a parable, it's a true story. When we see this man who had no ability in his hand, that is us in our hearts. We're the people with withered hearts. And what do we depend upon? The mercy of Jesus Christ. And how do we receive that? How are we healed of our withered hearts? The priceless act of compassion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Stanley Howell Ross wrote a book in 1986, and it's a theological uh, meditation on several things. One whole section of the book is a theological meditation on disabilities. On disabilities. And in this particular section, he, he says this. I think this section gives us an idea of how we ought to view this man with a withered hand. Uh, he said we tend to find our identity in our own agency, our ability to control ourselves, the skills we have, the things we do. And what he says is, is that Rather than finding our identity in those things, we have to find our identity in the fact that we can't do anything without God. We must be depossessed of our thinking that we are able. And so he says this, prophet-like, the disabled only remind us of our insecurity hidden in our false sense of self-ability. In the face of the disabled, we're offered an opportunity to see God, for like God, they offer us an opportunity of recognizing our own neediness. Isn't that gorgeous? 
Isn't that beautiful? When we see people who are in need, it should remind us of ourselves because we're the same. As we see the man with the withered hand, no ability to do anything about it. That's us. And the answer is Jesus Christ. That's where a heart of mercy comes from. That's the power of compassion. The compassion that Jesus, that God has on us in our critical need. From there, we share that compassion and that mercy on others. Let me pray. Father, forgive us in our failings. Convict us in our failings. Help us to praise your name in our successes. I thank you, Lord, that we have a church that has compassion. And yet, let's admit, all of us, we don't have compassion on all. I pray, God, you, you pull us further into that. That we would be a church of mercy and not sacrifice. We would look to the heart of the law, not the letter of it. We would look to following Christ and understanding the gospel and all that we have received rather than following uh, these punctilious observances, Lord. May we have the courage and the spirit to go against those things when they cause us to lack mercy. I pray this morning that you would renew me with your power of compassion. Remind me of, of what I, I need. I don't have the skill. I don't have the ability to save myself. I need you, Jesus. We need you. We are needy, and you give us mercy. Praise your name. And we pray in the name of the one who faced an unmerciful wrath of God so that we might have that mercy. The name of Jesus. Amen.